Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It is Monday, July 4th, 2022. And most of you are grilling or swimming or boating or doing something along those lines. And here I am sitting in The Dividing Line studio. <laughs> Why would we do this on a July 4th? Well, partly because there's going to be some, I'm getting a little echo back on me here, but Partly because there's uh, uh, going to be some construction around here that's going to make it a little bit difficult for us to use our big studio for at least a few days anyways. And I wanted to get in here to be able to use the big board uh, to talk about some stuff about uh, John chapter 10 and things like that. Uh, but uh, yes, it is July 4th and there are a lot of people who will not celebrate today. Um, I've never been a big, huge July 4th guy. Um you know, in, in Phoenix, it's normally, well, a whole lot hotter than it's going to be today. I've got to admit, we're in some ways making up for 2020 uh, in 2022. It is, you know, it is sort of bouncing out. Uh, it's just not been nearly as uh, as hot this, uh, this summer. Um, I don't know, we may get taken off of social media for saying that. It doesn't really fit the narrative, but that's just the way it's been. But... Uh, a lot of folks are saying because of uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, they're not going to celebrate the 4th of July. They're having a childish hissy fit, and um, there are people like that. There are a lot of Christians who are saying we should just be uh, rejoicing in our wonderful country today. And it is a wonderful country in the sense that it has uh, beautiful uh, landscapes, uh, amazing, uh, there's a a book that Doug Wilson's been talking about. I've read about half of it so far. Uh, young young author, I, his name is escaping me at the moment, but who talks about how there just really isn't any place else on earth that has the resources, transportation, river transportation, just the natural ability to be uh, successful uh, as uh, the United States does. And um, so there are lots of things like that that we can indeed be thankful for. Um, and as we look at, for example, the uh, horrific suffering of the people of North Korea um, in Vietnam, in, uh, in China, in, um, in certain Muslim countries, um, yeah, we can, be, we can indeed be very uh, thankful for all these things. Uh, but I simply have to be realistic in light of what has taken place over the past two years two and a half years almost, and especially over the past couple of weeks. We know uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 33, we all know this text, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. I've told the story before that many years ago here in Phoenix, one of the local television stations, this was before things like cable and stuff like that, um, on the hour would, would have, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord as their uh, call sign, uh, their station identification. And uh, that's not the case any longer, of course, but um, at least a lot of older people in the Phoenix area memorized Psalm 3312a without even wanting to try to uh, in, that, in that process. But there is a blessing upon a nation whose God is Yahweh. Notice the assumption. The assumption is every nation has a God. And you might say, well, that was just back in the primitive world. No, it it remains the same today. Every nation has a God, and that God will, can be a, a false deity. It can be philosophy. 
It can be military power. It can be uh, money, success, pleasure, sex, drugs. Um, It can be moral debauchery. But every nation has a God. And if a nation wishes to be blessed by God, then blesses the nation whose God is Yahweh, the one true God, the, the God who is the creator of all things. But we also know in Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so on July 4th, as we think about the United States, and I'm sorry if you're watching outside the United States, just... Uh, Hang with us for a while. I'm not going to be on this subject all that long. Um, When we consider the United States and we consider the dividedness of our people, there has never been a time in my life when there has been a deeper, more fundamental division. Divisions. It's, It's not just a single division, unfortunately that has not gone deeper and has no more threatened the very existence of this nation than we are experiencing right now. I, Jesus said, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And we are a house divided, not just in two, but in, in 30, 40, 50. The commonalities... The, a nation has to have a, a, some type of fundamental shared worldview to be able to exist as a nation. And that consensus is long gone in our experience here in the United States. I'll be honest with you, it would be a lot easier to pretend the past few weeks have not happened I'd be able to go along with all the tweets I've seen from people today saying we should be really, you know, upbeat and pop and and, uh, optimistic and things like that today and just celebrate and things like that. But um, that would be something I could do if we had not seen the utter worship of the culture of death from a five-year-old in Arkansas. Did you see that? A little five-year-old child in Arkansas holding a sign chanting, my body, my choice. Now, does that child have any idea what they're saying? No. But they are being perverted um, at at a very early age. So you go from that five-year-old in Arkansas to the senile president of the United States demanding the murder of the unborn be enshrined in law and to overthrow the rules of the Senate and everything else to get that accomplished. And everything in between. All the commentators, all of the people saying they're going to leave the United States, they never do. Um, where are they going to go? So it'd be a lot easier if we hadn't seen that kind of stuff. It'd be a lot easier to not address these things had we not stared in horror at the public debauchery and celebration of sexual perversity that is the month of June in the United States. And the pride marches. How long have pride marches been going on? A long time. But for a lot of us, they happened in San Francisco. Right? 
now they're everywhere. They're, they're in all through the Bible Belt. Main streets shut down and people flaunting their hatred of God's law, flaunting their sexual perversity in various stages of nudity or just full-on nudity. And parents who bring their children to observe these things. And now the argument literally being made throughout our media that this is a good thing. What was utterly unthinkable only a matter of years ago has already transitioned into this is the good. You're a hater if you say there's something wrong with this. Shut up or we will shut you up. Drag queens are now celebrated. They've become the high priestesses, something, I don't know even what they are, of self-expression and freedom. Go ahead and plop your grandchild down on the lap of that barely clothed whatever it is. They're celebrated. To be a good, according to our government. Fatherhood, manhood, mocked and decried. Motherhood, profaned. You can't listen to a news report today without having your moral sensibilities attacked. I was listening to a a report about a woman, and it was like being punched in the gut, slapped in the face, when it said, and her wife commented. Her wife commented. Well, we have, we have Pete Buttigieg, right? So you've got his husband. No, we don't have either one. That is an assault upon the meaning of husband and wife. I will not do it. It, it is wrong. It is morally wrong. And any nation that celebrates it will not last long upon the face of this earth, not because, as because God created this world. And you, you, can't, you can't live that way and expect to last long. Marriage mocked right, left, and center. I, uh, again, saw, a, I was watching something for a completely different reason. And all of a sudden, this guy says, and my partners are with me today. And the camera goes, these two women are polyamorous. And they're open about it. And everyone's clapping, and it's so... Covenant of marriage mocked. Drug overdoses, all-time high. People dropping right, left, and center, and the media doesn't even want to talk about it. Doesn't even want to talk about it. One of the reasons being, it's because the borders are wide open, and therefore plenty of fentanyl and everything else to kill everybody. Hey, what was it in California? They found this guy's, was it 150,000 or 15,000? I don't know, it was 15,000 or 150,000 fentanyl tablets. And they were released without bail on their own recognizance. (laughs) They'll be back, yeah. Suicides everywhere. Suicides everywhere. Blood running in the streets. Reports today of some type of shooting. 
in Highland Park, Illinois, outside of Chicago. They're saying it was a white guy. So they're reporting on it now. Not nearly as many people shot as were shot in Chicago over the weekend. But those were black people shooting black people. That's gang violence, and nobody cares. So that doesn't even get reported. You have to look it up. But, oh, it's a white guy with a rifle. Well, it's a black guy with a pistol. Eh, who cares? But white guy with a rifle. This fits our narrative, so we're on it. Blood in the streets. Crime at an all-time high. I watched the video of the shooting of, what, less than two weeks ago? Of the young black man in Akron, Ohio. Now, you lead the cops on a high-speed chase, um, and then you jump out of the, the car, and you're running, and they're chasing you, and then you turn on them? Uh, that's pretty much suicide by cop. I get it. That's, that's a good way to go. But they shot him 60 times. More than 60 bullet wounds. Blood in the streets. Tyranny on the rise. And amazingly, it's not just governmental tyranny. It is corporate tyranny. The government and corporations working together to establish absolute control over every aspect of your life. Coming digital currency. If you don't realize how absolutely dangerous that is and how once it's established, the government owns you. You are literally putting your hands out and say, put the shackles on. Put them on me. Enslave me. That's what, that's what it will result in. How many banks have already said, we're not going to deal, we're not going to work with you. We're not going to deal with you. You, you think any of those banks would, would blush for a second to do the same thing with a church that stands against homosexuality, against transgenderism? That's, that's the whole point. It's enslavement. We are a house divided. Our universities have collapsed into absolute nonsense. You, you can't find a straight-thinking person in any of the Ivy League schools any longer. This is where we are. And I, you, you know the phrase, post-tenebrous lux, right? After the darkness, light. But as I look at our situation, it's post-lux tenebrous. It's after the light, darkness. Because think of the light. What is the biggest selling book in the history of the United States? Everybody knows. There are more Bibles in this land than any other book by multiple numbers, multiple degrees. There has been, in many places in this country, you... You drive down the freeways, you drive down the highways, and you can't go more than a matter of minutes until you are next to another church. Yeah, I have noticed as I've traveled, more and more of them are getting closed. But there was that history. I've mentioned a number of times that I have a a New Testament uh, that I snagged on eBay because... My former fellow elder 
had a copy of it from his dad who had fought in World War II. And the government had handed these out to all the GIs and had a letter in it from President Roosevelt recommending to everyone the reading of these words. There is much light, tremendous amount of light from the beginning. Now, it did not burn as brightly at every point in history. You do not have to claim that, oh, everybody up until the 1960s were all Christians and yeah, that's what you're saying. No, not saying anything of that kind of, at all. But there was a foundation that recognized the necessity of seeing man as the creature of God and the necessity of this being a nation of laws and that there was a foundation for having this be a nation of laws because, well, what, what book did you put your hand on to swear the oath of office? What book did you put your hand on to swear into uh, giving testimony in a court of law? It's the Bible. There is a recognition of that foundation. I've read this before, but I want to read the full context this time. Um, I think it's important uh, to hear these words. Adams was one of the founding fathers of the nation, and he wrote a letter. It's letter to the officers of the 1st Brigade or the 3rd Division of the Militia of Massachusetts, 11 October 1798, found in Revolutionary Services and Civil Life of General William Hull, Pages 265 to 266, if you want to look it up. Good luck finding it. But here's what was said. Leave this to John Adams. While our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world, while she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, We shall have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by providence. But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it is practicing iniquity and extravagance, and displays in the most captivating manner the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity, while it is rioting in rapine and insolence, this country will be the most miserable habitation in the world. Because we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, and licentiousness would break break the strongest cords of our Constitution. As a whale goes through a net, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Oaths in this country are as yet universally considered as sacred obligations. 
That which you have taken and so solemnly repeated on that venerable ground is an ample pledge of your sincerity and devotion to your country and its government. There is no way to understand any of that outside of the Christian worldview, Christian understanding of mankind. And that line echoes in my mind, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. We do not have a moral and religious people. And hence, the attack upon the Constitution makes perfect sense. It has been a blessing. It has lasted longer than any other in history. But its founders said, we designed it for this kind of people. And as I watch, and I don't retweet these things because they're pornographic, but as I watch these videos of the past just just two weeks of drag queens and pride marches, I know that every single founder, even those that were not particularly religious, would look at that and go, no hope. They all knew the history of Rome. They knew what caused the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And they wouldn't think that a nation that would look with approval upon that kind of behavior could last any time at all. Never has the myth of neutrality been seen to be more so inane, so empty as today. My generation lived with it. We deceived ourselves into thinking that we could just have our spiritual life and then you've got the the life out in the world. And so when those crazy hippies started doing what they were doing in the 60s, I remember my parents talking about it. I was, look, I've, I've told the story. I... At five years of age, four or five years of age, I'm sitting there watching the world news, uh, evening news on CBS, Walter Cronkite. I'm tracking with the, the war in Vietnam. I know who the president is. And so when my parents start talking about drug-using hippies and their horrible rock music and, and uh, you know, All the rest of that stuff, I I remember it clearly. But that was out there. That was was out there. That's never really going to impact us in our lives. That's just out there. Except those hippies uh, took over the universities and the government. Um, And so... The time for, well, you know, it's all just, all my Christian faith, just in my heart, you know. A time's passed. Because the, the tyranny of the secular state is such that they cannot allow for even the possibility of someone thinking otherwise than what the state wants you thinking. I don't know if, if I'd even have the, the guts to do it, but I, I've told you about the Stasi prison more than once. That wasn't the worst place. It wasn't the worst place. 
I'd have to have lots of warnings up for the program uh, to tell you about some of the worst stuff that the communists did. And even if I told you about it, the whole point of telling you why and telling you about it and, and, and that kind of thing would be to illustrate the reality that secular totalitarianism, atheistic communism, does the evil that it does by nature. It's, it's, it's because of what it is. And it cannot be avoided. And it proves the truth of Romans 1 and numerous other passages of Scripture in the process. And it is in the halls of Congress. It is in our government right now. It truly is. And so what are we to do? Well, the days of the it's all just in my heart Christianity is over. We, we have to loudly proclaim to everyone, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that actually means King of kings and Lord of lords. <laughs> Not just the nice, safe, religious kings and religious lords. King of kings and Lord of lords is a claim of ultimate authority over all of creation because he is the creator himself. The only hope of mankind is in submission to him. With everything, nuclear weapons and pandemics and biological warfare and genetic engineering, and I'm saying the answer is found in someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Yes, because he's still alive. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's the only way that mankind is going to be able to find peace and flourishing and prosperity in light of the dangers that we pose to ourselves. Because we most certainly do pose those kind of dangers. So it's July 4th. And many moons ago, on September 13th, 2001, I uh, came on the dividing line and, and I said, well, our nation's really pulling together. It's all this discussion of God bless America, but the only blessing that this nation actually truly needs is a blessing of heartfelt repentance. And we didn't have, outside of maybe San Francisco, um, the kind of wholesale, open, proud debauchery parading down our streets in 2001 we have today. So the, uh, the idolatry has not changed. The nation is not giving me any evidence whatsoever that it's turning from its idolatry. And that's, what it, that's our only hope. That is our only hope. And we need to teach our children and our children's children what what will be our only hope? When this all comes crashing down and no society that's doing what this society 
society is doing can, can avoid that fate. When this all comes crashing down, what do, you, what do you build on? What do you rebuild with? Secularism will always destroy. It will always destroy. And that's where we are. Okay, let's uh, take a deep breath. <laughs> There's no one watching anymore. And um, let's talk about some things that are absolutely and completely non-controversial. <laughs> Many years ago, I, um, I did a debate with Dr. Mitchell Pacwa. And Father Pacwa is a wonderfully nice fellow. He really is. And we debated the doctrine of the Mass. Now, this was the first time we had met. We did two debates, justification and the Mass, on two nights at a large Catholic church uh, in, I think it was El Cajon, if I recall correctly. Southern California somewhere. And, you know, I, I think we got to know each other a little bit better in later debates, and so they were more personable, I think. These were pretty, and these were some of my earliest debates, and so I was very formal, probably hurried too much, didn't connect the, the audience as much as I would in later years. I was young and I was learning. And um, in that debate, Dr. Pacwa argued that in Matthew chapter 26, and in the parallels, of course, in, in Luke, um, two things were present there. Let's get that out of the way. There we go. Put it down the middle. Um, and while they're eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So most know that this right here, this is my body. Tuta estinta somamu. This is my body. And we have the verb of being, I me, right here. This is my body. And if you are... Uh, familiar with Reformation church history, you know that in the Marburg Colloquy, I had the opportunity, very thankful I had this chance in 2017 to stand in the room where the colloquy took place. And you may have seen the, uh, the artist rendering of the debate between Zwingli and Luther. And Luther writes on the table... Uh, in Latin, but it's this phrase, this is my body. And he just keeps, this is, 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 estin. This is my body. And, you know, Zwingli failed to convince him, but most people say actually succeeded in convincing pretty much everybody else in the room that Luther was being rather pigheaded and didn't really have a lot of defense of his position, but that's what took place. And obviously, uh, Dr. Pacwa is saying, this is my body. This is a direct statement. Um, 
and he's, he has taken some bread and says, this is my body. And so since in Roman Catholic theology, that means even before Christ gives himself upon the cross, he works the miracle of transubstantiation, even before his own sacrifice. He works the miracle of transubstantiation and offers himself to his disciples. Um, and then when he, in Paul's uh, version of this, this is very difficult to see over there, unfortunately. Let me see if I can find it. Having trouble finding it. Uh, no. You have to walk over. Apologies. I'm close. <laughs> there has got to be a way to do this differently. Ah! Ah! I actually got to it. Yay. Um, in Paul's version, we'll not save that. Come on. Thank you. In Paul's version, uh, you just scroll that down. Uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Dr. Pacwa focused on Poyaita. This do in remembrance of me. And Poyaita is an imperative, so it's command. And so, since they understand Jesus to have worked the miracle of transubstantiation in saying, this is my body, same, you know, right here, this is my body, do this. Jesus was, by using the imperative there, ordaining the apostles as priests with the power of transubstantiation. Now, just in passing, this was a relatively new idea in the days of Thomas Aquinas. Um, but Aquinas's dedication to the mysteries of the Eucharist is well documented, very, very well documented. Um, the point is, in both of these places, you can see how an external system, an external theological formulation, is being substantiated in a way where if you, if you stood back and you said, well, wait a minute, that's not what Matthew would have understood. There's, there's no evidence of the sacerdotal priesthood in, in, in the early church, the primitive church. And that develops later on, and they're, they're at the Passover, and there's all sorts of things at the Passover that are symbolic, you know, the, the bitter herbs representing the sufferings of the people of Israel, and everything on the table was a symbol of something. That was the point of the whole Passover. And so the original context of 
where these words were spoken would be determinative. And what's happened is that original context has been removed and a later theological system has, been, has replaced the original context as the determining factor. Because do this in remembrance of me, that's, that's a, that is a really hard sell to try to turn that into ordination to the Roman Catholic priesthood with the ability to bring about the miracle of transubstantiation. That's a, that's a big one, isn't it? And yet that's what they do. That's what they do. Let me give you, I think, one more example. One more example. You know what? Why? This is... In fact, I'm going to get rid of this one, too. See, now it's it's perfect. Now, here's one that if you are Reformed, and this discussion is especially for Reformed folks, even those of you who don't think that I am anymore, um, though my positions haven't changed. uh, In John chapter 6, a number, of, a number of my current critics have admitted that I was uh, central in introducing them to the doctrines of grace. And the book on the Trinity may have been one of the first books they read on the Trinity, things like that. And you'll recall that in the Forgotten, uh, the, the Potter's Freedom, I was responding to Dr. Norman Geisler, and one of the... Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of people benefited from that was a frustration for me initially. You know, you couldn't tell at that time, you know, the blessing that book was going to be and everything else. It just at the time you're going, you're going to write a book in response to Geisler, really? You're wanting to commit theological suicide and um, you'll never be invited to anything anymore. Okay, that's probably a good thing. Anyway, um, you will recall that I wrote to Dr. Geisler and I, uh, I asked him about his exegesis of John 6.37 because while he quoted from John 6 in a number of different places in the book, he never provided any exegesis. He had, he had said, I had asked, and he said, well, I, I provide exegesis in the book. So when I wrote back, I cited every single thing he had said about that verse. Every single thing. Some of you may recall, I, I asked friends in our IRC chat room, I'd buy them the book, and then I would ask them to go through every single page and create an index for me, because there wasn't an exhaustive scripture index in the original uh, edition. And I'd pay them with Amazon gift certificates. This was back in 2000, I think. And... Um, so I had myself, I believe, I had already done the look at every single page, mark down every place where John 6 is referenced. And so I sent him you know, a letter, again, respectful, saying, here's everything you said on John 6. There's no exegesis here. And there wasn't. 
And he just sent a note card back that says, if you publish, I'll respond. That was it. That was the last communication I ever had. Um, directly, anyways, <laughs> from Dr. Geisler. And you all will remember that what Dr. Geisler did is he went down here to verse 40. For this will of my father, nor that all the ones looking upon the Son and believing in him might have eternal life, and I will raise him up uh, on the last day. It goes off screen there, but that's what it is. Uh, well, you can see it in English anyways. And so he goes to verse 40. And so the one looking, the one believing, that means everyone has the ability to look. Everyone has the ability to believe. It's your looking and believing that determines whether you can be given by the Father, etc., etc. So he jumps down to verse 40 and then reads the conclusions out of verse 40 up into 37 through 39, which, of course, is the, the key text. And what he does then is he turns the text on its head. So instead of following the argument from here down and defining your terms, again, that's, that's how you do exegesis. That's how you would want a letter that you've written to be read, a book that you've written to be read. That's how human communication takes place. You... You go in order. Um, he jumps down here, gets his conclusion, and then reads it back up into this so as to miss or to dismiss what's in verses 37 through 39. And it just seems that my Reformed brothers should be able to recognize this when it happens someplace else. It, it, this isn't something we, we argue about, is it? We all saw, yeah, yeah, Geisler did that. Yeah, that's true. He did. Well, okay. Then let's go to, and now I've got to go back to the first one. So this will be, this will be tricky. <laughs> got to go once. Yay! Now, unfortunately, the, uh, there we go. Got that out of the way. Yay. Okay. Over the weekend, a, a bit of a discussion developed. Josh Summer tweeted uh, the following tweet. Quote, Jesus did not say, I and my Father are one in purpose. Jesus said, I and my Father are one, full stop. The substantive verb, very unusual phrase, makes the Father and Son identical in essence. To make the essence differ from Father or Son fails to account for the language of John 10.30. Now, I didn't bring a copy in with me. But just under, right, pretty much right at a quarter century ago. Because, you know, it took some time to write it. So, yeah, it would be right at last century, 25 years ago. I wrote a little book called The Forgotten Trinity. And, you know, first 15 
years, 20 years after it came out? Not much in the way of controversy. I mean, the Unitarians didn't like it, the Jehovah's Witnesses didn't like it, and stuff like that. But amongst our folks, yeah, pe- people were using it. And, you know, I, I got so many uh, letters and communication and people coming up to me saying, man, you, you really introduced me to the idea of loving the Trinity and, and seeing it right there in Scripture. It's just, it's wonderful. And it was great. Go back to the book. Look up John 10.30. The later editions have a good scripture index in it. We had to actually provide that for a while. The first, first printing didn't really have a good scripture. We created our own and put, put it on the website. <laughs> um, but um, look up John 10.30. I expressed the same viewpoint I hold now. And my concern about the misuse of John 10.30, 25 years ago. Okay, it was published in 98, so 24, but like I said, you write books before they're published. So a quarter century ago, I was concerned because I would see people just simply throw John 10.30 out as a proof text of the deity of Christ by simply quoting it. I and the Father are one. And then they would make a metaphysical assertion. See, this means the Father and the Son um, are fully deity. They, they fully share the, the one being that is God. We actually used language back then that was much more uh, expressive than the um, really, really Vague technical stuff. Now, let, let me give you one uh, person. Um, Rich, I doubt, doubt you've seen this one. Uh, here's, uh, here's one that, that was posted yesterday. A person is the divine essence subsisting in a relative property. A person is the divine essence subsisting in a relative property. Now, I get that. I get what's being said. Um, The problem is that it's using language that was meant to deal with only one set of questions about the doctrine of the Trinity. And it is so much less than the biblical presentation. It's only concerned with one very narrow aspect And that very narrow aspect isn't nearly enough to deal with the fullness of biblical revelation on the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit to one another, their actions in time, um, and things like that. And so uh, it was a little easier to understand what the discussions were back then. They've gotten uh, really much less... Uh, meaningful to the people in the pew, which is a shame. It's a real shame. Anyway, going back to uh, what we're saying here, uh, I pointed out the context of John chapter 10 in the Forgotten Trinity. And so let me just remind us of what's going on here. We, We know 
You know, Jesus has just said to the Jews, John 10, 26, uh, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Pretty strong words <laughs> to the Jews. And it's, it's, he doesn't say, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. It's the reverse of that. You do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Most people hear it and make that switch in their mind to fit their Arminian synergistic presuppositions, but it's not what it says. The reason you don't believe, you're not my sheep. I give my life to my sheep. And my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So before we continue on, catch what's being said. The, you've, John expects that you've already read chapter 6. And John expects that you've already read chapter 8. And both of those chapters, of course they weren't a part of his original writing, but you know what I'm saying. Both of those chapters have already given us this terminology. Um, for example, in verse 29, he's going to say, The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He doesn't stop to explain the Father who's given them to me. Yeah, because that was already in John 6. That's already there. You already have that uh, mysterious but deeply biblical idea of the Father sovereignly giving a people to the Son. And if you can't tell who's giving whom to whom and why, in light of what the persons are doing, you've lost the Bible as your source. You've lost the Bible as your source. And my friend, you will not teach the sheep of Christ his truth unless you use his word. Hear me. You won't. You will not succeed. You will fail. Just a warning. I think it's... Take it for what it's worth. So, verse 28 says, And I give to them eternal life. Now, right there, right there you have an incredible claim. Moses couldn't say that. Isaiah couldn't say that. They are his sheep. They follow him. They are following me. This is, all of this is rich in Old Testament imagery regarding Yahweh and the sheep of the pasture and all of it. And I give eternal life to them. And they will, ooh, may, error, subjunctive, strong denial. 
they'll never perish. Ume. It's not just u. It's ume. Never. Can't happen. Forever. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I mean, that's, that's claim to deity. There's no question about it. Giving of eternal life. Making the claim, they'll never perish. My sheep never perish. I have the ability to save perfectly. But again, you already read that in John 6. You already read that in John 8. That, that's, already, that's already been established. And now it's being asserted again. And this idea of my hand, he's, that comes from he will keep them. They will not perish. Why? Because they're in his hand. He's holding them. That way they'll never perish. I, I remember years ago, I've told the story before, and I, I won't take too much time on this because it'll take us off of our subject, but I had this guy at our church, uh, big Southern Baptist church, uh, start teaching that you could lose your salvation. And you know the, the leadership dealt with him and moved him along. A couple years later, I ran into a Berean Christian bookstore, 35th Avenue Camelback. Remember clearly. And we start talking, and immediately the debate starts. And I brought this text up. And I said, what, is, what does Jesus mean? When he says, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And his response was, that's right. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, but you can jump out. But you can jump out. I said, but it says they won't perish. What happens if you jump out? Yeah. So the balance is always there, just as in John chapter 5, John chapter 6. The balance is always there when you have the assertion on Jesus' part, I give eternal life to them. The balance is then brought in, my Father. Not just the Father, but my Father. Putting Mu there, Jesus is distinguishing himself from the Father. And there is a, an action. Hapatermu ha dedekenmoi. My father who has given them to me. John 6, all the father gives me will come to me. The father draws to the son. I believe we are in danger in the current situation where I believe a very imbalanced situation is developing of losing the richness of the inter-Trinitarian accomplishment of redemption for the sake of some philosophical speculation where you have people running around and if you don't believe this, you're going to become a tritheist. Where are the tritheist churches, by the way? I, I, have you run across any? I've not, I've not seen one. I mean, I mean, not even the Mormons are tritheists. That's too few. The Mormons have an unlimited number of gods. I mean, they, they, there are more gods in Mormonism than the Hindus ever dreamed of. The Hindus got 330 million. But I haven't found the tritheist churches. Um, maybe, maybe they're out there somewhere. I just, I just I haven't Googled deeply enough or something. I don't know. But it... it the, my father 
who gave them to me. There is a distinction of actions, is there not? Did the, did the son give them to himself? No. The father gave them to me. If your theology is too brittle and philosophical and shallow to believe that, stop calling it Christian theology. Stop it. You've got to deal with what this says. This is the source of Christian theology. This is the source of Christian truth. I'm sorry? The, the source, that's right. My Father who has given to me is greater than all. Now, there was some... I, I, didn't, I just saw it before we went on the air. And there was some argument, it seemed... I, I, I couldn't tell if it was from today or if this was from back. But there was some argument about greater than all. And as I see this, um, when it says udais dunatai, so that one we've seen, but no one is able, goes back to John 6, harpadzine to grasp, to snatch them out of my father's hand. When it says udais, I don't see that as including the son. He's He's... He's not in view. Not because you can't tell the difference between the Father and the Son. And not because it's just simply one hand. Because the Father has given them into his hand. So it's, it's a little bit like, for you have, remember, remember the illustration I've used over and over again? It's a beautiful illustration. Your life, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there is a there is a way you you must again allow the biblical categories to say we are united with the son in a way that we are not united with the father or the spirit. We are united with the father and the spirit through the son. But the Bible is the one making the distinction. So when Jesus says, I will make my, my, we, the Father and I, will make our abode with you in John, he's talking about the coming of the Spirit. And so you see the, the different aspects of redemption that are being accomplished by the divine persons. And if you say, yeah, but they're all the same action. Well, they are inseparable in their unity and the accomplishment of the decree of God. But they are not inseparable in the language. And if you squish them all together to accomplish your philosophical goals, you end up squishing out the meaning of the text itself. So yeah, there is only one decree of God. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are in perfect harmony with one another. They accomplish the one decree of God. Yes. You go beyond that. You show me where the Bible tells me to do that. And you can't. It's your philosophy. And you know it. That's why you go, you can't be a biblicist. So all of this takes us 
Uh, I'm just go ahead and leave that there because it's it's still on the screen. <laughs> Everybody can see it's just bottom line. I and the Father are one. Ego kai ha pater hen esmen. I and the Father are one. Now, is there an obvious context here? There is. There is. You have the sheep receiving eternal life from the Son, and you have the Father giving the sheep to the Son, and you have the assertion that no one will ever snatch them out of the Son's hand, and no one has the ability to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that is why they will receive eternal life, because the Father and the Son are intent upon accomplishing the eternal life of the sheep. And I pointed out in the Forgotten Trinity that esmen, just the standard verb of existence, I me, is plural. I and the Father, we are one. That's important because when you're dealing with modalists, they want to say, I and the Father, we are one person. I am the Father because that's just my, the one hand. They, they ignore the distinction of the Father giving to the Son, the Son being the one that the sheep hear His voice, they follow Him, He's the Good Shepherd. Distinctions that are right in the text. And they ignore that and say, see, he is the Father. It doesn't say, it says, we are one. It's plural. It's very important. And I think a lot of you who, again, you're the imbalanced philosophers, you aren't out there dealing with these people. And I know you just shut your, 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 your ears off at this point. But listen to me. I've learned over the decades how people become imbalanced. I have said you can go back for decades, and I, where I've said I am so thankful the Lord did not allow us to stay focused only upon one particular group. We start off dealing with Mormonism. And I've seen people, not all, not all by any stretch of the imagination, but I have seen people who get just so focused upon this one thing that, you know, ends up, the Mormons are behind everything. And it wasn't very long after we started dealing with Mormonism that people come along and they start asking questions. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on my door. and What do you know about them? And sort of forced to, to start learning that. And uh, that was a long process. And, and, and then Benny Diaz came along and said, hey, let's... <laughs> let's make you really unpopular, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so we've had to deal with these different perspectives. And what happens is, what that forces you to do is to stay balanced. When you're only pulling one direction, you can't remain balanced. But if you're pulling this direction, and you got somebody back this side, and they're just waiting for you to fall into their hands, you've got to stay balanced. And so that's one of the reasons that there have been arguments that 
against Mormonism that we've never used because we recognize that would be contradictory to what we're saying to Jehovah's Witnesses. See? And so you have to have balance. And if you're not out doing the work and meeting these people, you're not going to see the need for that. And so the point is, the cults will say, oh, they're just one in purpose. Just one in purpose. Well, what is the purpose? The purpose is giving eternal life to the sheep. You take that back to the Old Testament, that's what Yahweh does. And so is this text on the deity of Christ? You better believe it's on the deity of Christ. How could it be anything other? But the simple statement, I and the Father, we are one, to jump from that to what Jesus is talking about is he's making the philosophical distinctions between substance and essence and person and and bring bring theology and it's developed hundreds of years later and say, ah, period, full stop, that's what this is about. You can't defend that because... Remember the text we looked at before? That's what was going on there too, and you agreed with us. You agreed. You saw it. You recognized it. And rightly so. So, what are we saying here? Here's, here's, what's, um, here's what we need to see. Um, oh, here's what I need to do. Dum, dum. There's somebody out there right now going, it is not fair that he has that thing. Just not fair. So what you you have is we have John 10.30, okay? John 10.30. And we have its meaning in context. And what you do is you see that in the context of, in in the larger context of John, John's gospel, Okay, that's the the larger context. And then you get the the New Testament, that's the larger context. And then, of course, you know, Scripture, the, the, the major big context, okay? And it is perfectly appropriate to look at this and to see what does that mean in all of John. That's perfectly, do it. And then we need to see John in reference to Peter and Paul and the New Testament. And then we see the Old Testament backgrounds and the consistency. All those things are true. And then once we have that, then we can tie this together with everything else in John that tells us more and more about Jesus. And so we can put these things all together and come to a theological conclusion. Okay. And what makes this valuable and important is the is the the strength of these connections, okay? If we're just simply citing texts that don't really have a lot to do we we haven't done our homework and there isn't a consistency then the conclusion is going to be very weak. But the reason that these conclusions, these theological conclusions that we come to, can be passed on from generation to generation to generation across 
linguistic boundaries and across cultural boundaries is because of the strength of the connection they have to their biblical source because this is what is theanustos. This is God speaking. Okay? Now, the problem comes when you develop a system. Uh, what did I? Oh. Okay. The problem comes when you develop a system. It's so much faster than doing it the other way. And so you, you come up with your, your theological system. And that system becomes the lens through which you then view any given text of Scripture. It tells you what you're going to find in John 10.30. It's the system. It's the lens. Now, this may be completely true. But it has become the ultimate authority. What's found, the, the, the truth of John 10.30 is subordinate to what the system tells you to see there. And so what happened in the conversation, what happened in the conversation was when people pushed back with Pastor Summer, eventually what he said was, to me, Christ's purpose would be meaningless apart from consubstantial unity with the Father. So I'm saying that Christ's immediate sense in John 10.30 is consubstantiality of essence as the ground for his purpose, that is, calling retainment of the sheep in verses 28 to 29. Let me read that again. Christ's purpose would be meaningless apart from consubstantial unity with the Father. So I'm saying that Christ's immediate sense, so this would be what he intended by the words in John 10.30, is consubstantiality of essence as the ground for his purpose, that is the calling and retainment of the sheep in verses 28 to 29. So the full stop thing sort of got pushed aside, needed to. But do you see what that is? It's upside down. It's what Geister does in John 6. It's upside down. You're making an assertion. The meaning that Jesus intends to communicate is consubstantiality with the Father. Now, I'm sure the Jews all would have gone, what? What? Because the only way to understand consubstantiality with the Father is in the light of developments that are 300 years down the road. Now, what's in Scripture has to determine the developments 300 years down the road. That's why Nicaea's authority is dependent upon its consistency with Scripture. If you don't see this, then you have to answer one major question. Where does that come from? Because it's now your ultimate authority. And if the system that developed over time is your ultimate authority, and it determines how you then interpret 
the pages of Scripture, then fundamentally, foundationally, epistemologically, you have to find out where this comes from. What's its ground? What's its authority? And there are only a couple answers you can give to that. And none of them are Protestant. <laughs> none of them are Protestant. Um, you're, you're stuck with it. You're stuck with it. And you can say, well, but it's, it's, it's ultimately subordinate. Da, 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 da. You can use all sorts of words, but here's, here's, here's again. Take this stuff outside of your little groups and take it out into the world. Try to communicate Christian truth to people who don't already agree with you on the foundations. And you'll pretty quickly start realizing there's a lot of really sharp people out there that are going to realize where the cracks in your foundations are. I think of that young kid told the story many, many times of the sharp, I think he was a return missionary, young Mormon that came up to me, Maine and Hobson, and he, we were passing out a track, Grace Plus Works is dead, and he very quickly, I mean, we're talking within the first minute of conversation, realized that if what I was saying was true, then God predestined a certain people into salvation. He recognized it. Now, part of that might be because of what the Mormon temple ceremony says about that, which presents it as the very doctrine of the devil, of the devil himself. But he recognized that. He saw that if grace was as free and powerful as we were saying it was, then God must have predestined people into salvation. He saw it. And there are Muslims that I've talked to that they see what the foundational issues are. And, and I just think if y'all would get out a bit more, you'd realize that it just seems these days that y'all are sort of going, well, as long as we can differentiate, as long as we can come up with a technical term, that's, that's good enough. Um, we, can, we can say that it means this, and therefore that, that's good enough. Your technical terms don't mean a whole lot on the street. And isn't that where the proclamation takes place? Isn't that where Paul was going? Seems to be. Seems to be. So, um, let me just touch on a, a couple other things here and we'll, we'll be wrapping up. Um, one thing that I do want to, to also include in this um, Okay, Josh Summer again, and I'm going to talk about someone else. Consider if the incarnation was not a triune work, but only a unique work of the Son. The Son would possess a distinct will from the Father to incarnate, but he would also possess a distinct power to work or affect his own incarnation. This would result in a division of the divine essence, since we confess God is all-powerful. Therefore, either the works of the Trinity are inseparable, or the persons are three distinct substances willing and doing accordingly. I want you to, we need to think this through, because this is, this is really where, where the extended assertion of divine simplicity, inseparable operations, again, in the extended, it's not that God works in perfect harmony, it's that, well, to, 
here, let me, let me put it in the words of someone else. Um, Stefan Gedeon, hi Stefan, how you doing? Uh, said this, the Father is greater than all those who would try to pluck believers out of the Father's hand, which is identical to the Son's hand. This is why Father and Son are doing the same thing here. Because hand is figurative for God's power and might, it refers to the what and not the who. The Father gives none of creation, including the elect, to the Son with respect to divinity, because all of creation already belongs to the triune God. Uh, let me get rid of this one. There is another quote, and I'm trying to find it. Um, too many... Yeah, there it is. There it is. Too many... Lots of little boxes on the screen. If all, crea- if all of creation does not already belong to the Son with respect to divinity, then you are borderline with Arianism. All things made by the Son and for the Son, Colossians 1.16, and this is Trinitarian appropriation, since all things are also made by the Father and for the Father. There is no modalism borderline in my view because what distinguishes, here it is, because what distinguishes the persons of the ontological trinity is their relations of origin. The persons are not distinguished by external actions. Okay, there's... There's where 99.995% of all Christians down through history have no earthly idea what was just said. And if that's required for orthodoxy, there's never been there have been very, very few orthodox Christians down through history. Very, very few. But here's what you need to understand is being said. There are numerous people who are arguing again based upon extended assertion of divine simplicity, extended assertion of inseparable operations, that you cannot distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit by what they do in time. I want you to think about that. I I really want you to to ponder that. The only way to distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit is is there relations of origin? What are relations of origin? How many people right now, if you ask this question of them, this coming Sunday, what are the relations of origin? Would be able to give you an answer. What's being referred to is the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit in regards to procession, spiration, The Father begets the Son, the Father and the Son, the the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in the West, not not in the East, but the internal relations of the divine persons. You remember that in John, right? In Romans? It's nowhere. It is a theological analysis 
of a small number of texts that can even be considered relevant to try to give us some idea of the relationship of the divine persons before creation. It is not the subject of a tremendous amount of divine revelation, if any at all. And so how is it that all of a sudden we've gotten to the point of saying the only way to distinguish the persons is not by what they do, not by how they've revealed themselves, not by their actions in time. It's because of a philosophical system that has been developed to answer questions within one context of the world that the church has gone out into. And that now has become the overarching authority. So, the, per- the, the persons are not distinguished by external actions because they're all the same action. But you're sitting there going, but, but the Father sent the Son. It's all one action. But, but the Father sent the Son, and the, the Son humbles himself, and he does not consider equality with the Father's Son to be grasped. And that's not what the Father did. That's, that's what the Son did, and that's not the same thing the Spirit does. And, but, the, but, but they're all the same action. Yep, all the same action, inseparable operations. Utter destruction of any meaningful understanding on our part of the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. You, you cannot... You simply cannot go into John 17, verse 5, and get anything out of that. Because the only way to distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit is their relations of origin. Don't bother looking at relations of origin in your concordance. It's not there. It is a theological construct that can either be useful not in destroying biblical categories, but illustrating biblical categories. But it it always must be seen as being lesser than the biblical revelation, as, as maybe shedding some light on one small aspect. This is what happens when it becomes the be all and end all of all things. John 17, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. It all gets squished down into a flat pancake. Amazing. But that's what we're looking at. That's what we're dealing with. So, the whole point is this. John 10.30 has a meaning that when, not interpreted by our overarching lenses, but when placed together with the rest of divine revelation, teaches us not only the deity of Christ, but the beautiful, gracious reality of the relationship of Father and Son. And if your commitment to some kind of philosophical conclusion leads you to go, no, um, 
the, the son does not receive anything from the father. Remember, remember a few weeks ago when one of these guys said, you can't say the father loves the son, except that Jesus said it twice. Well, that's only in appropriations. So in other words, there's always an out. That language does not come from Scripture. It comes from a system. And it's used to diminish the testimony of Scripture. We can't do that. That I, Can you imagine some of these guys in cross-examination with sharp Unitarians or, or, or Muslims or... It would, it, would, it would really be ugly. Really be ugly. Bad stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. So there you go. Um, you either start with divine revelation as your foundation and then go in those larger contexts all the way out to all of Scripture, and then you put those truths together. Remember, we've drawn this on the board before. You put those, those truths together. There are certain things that are absolutely necessary. If you, you have one God, you have three divine persons, and they are not to be confused with one another, you've got the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. You can do that. But there comes a point... There comes a point when the light of Scripture comes to an end, and if we go running past that, we end up in self-contradiction and the darkness that we've imposed upon ourselves. You really do. So, when I go into a debate and I quote John 10.30, I can be consistent. Because I'm using the same consistent rules of hermeneutics that I use in debating Geisler's misunderstanding of John 6 or the Roman Catholic abuse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm consistent. I'm, I'm doing the same thing. And you all agree over there, but not over here. Oh, not over here. Because now I'm stepping on your tradition, on your new toy. So all of a sudden, oh, no, we can't do that. I'm being consistent. And so when I debate the Muslim, and I apply the same rules of hermeneutics of ancient languages and contexts to the Quran, and they then run off, and this happens. This happens in Surah 5, where I'm going, well, look, look at the consistency in Surah 5. It, it, it deceives me. About, oh, no, 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 it can't, it can't mean that. Why? Because we have this system. And I say, you can't do that. I can't turn around and do the same thing. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Oh, goodness. We went for an hour on that. <laughs> I sort of figured we probably would. And it's July 4th, for crying out loud. You know how weird it is that we're sitting in this, this room on July 4th talking about stuff like external actions and relations of origin and stuff like that? Well, that's what we do around here. And there are a few of you out there that still appreciate it. So we appreciate you as well. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the program today. I hope that I didn't ruin anyone's cookout uh, or your, 
Man, we were so poor when I was a kid. All you did on July 4th was you put the sprinkler, the, uh, the one that went like this, in the front yard, and you went running through it. We didn't have a pool. Only rich people had pools. What are you talking about? And you'd go running through the, running through the sprinkler in the front yard, and that was, that was, pretty, much, uh, that was pretty much it. But uh, it was fun. Well, we might play cowboys and Indians and all sorts of really completely politically incorrect stuff like that, too. But uh, we need sticks for guns and you know, all that stuff that just absolutely ruined the nation. Anyhow, have a great uh, fourth the rest of the day. Please consider what we said in the first half hour. Pray for our nation and pray for God to, to do a mighty work amongst us. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. God bless.